This evening, I ask that you return to the book of Esther, and we'll pick up somewhat where we left off at the beginning of chapter 3. We're making good progress through Esther, aren't we? We really don't have any choice, especially when you're looking at a narrative. You know, sometimes I look at the, the book of Romans, for instance, and I wonder how it's possible that anyone ever preaches through Romans. And I've looked at it several times thinking that that would be a great book to preach through. I love the book of Romans, but, but then you look at what Paul writes and you realize, well, I could preach out of this one verse for at least five weeks. And then you realize how long the book of Romans is, and you went, I would die before I finished it. And a friend of mine's currently preaching through Romans, and I reminded him, you just have to tell yourself you can preach through that book again. And that was from personal experience, because I learned that lesson going through Hebrews. I could get stuck in Hebrews, but I had to remind myself we could preach through that book again. Uh, narratives don't have the same problem um, because in order to get the broader sense of things, we kind of have to look at what's actually being communicated here. So we'll pick up in chapter 3, and, and like we did this morning, we'll actually read all the way through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he, is, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then 
The king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Walking through this text, we have to first remember where we're coming off of. Remember in chapter 2, we ended with Mordecai saving the day. So Mordecai was in the right place at the right time and heard that there was this plan between two of the eunuchs that were standing guard where Esther was being kept and they had gotten upset about something or who knows what it was, but they had ultimately made a treasonous plan to um, assassinate King Ahasuerus. They made a plan to kill him. And Mordecai according to the way that God had made him and the personality that he had and everything that goes along with that, told Esther about this plan. And as a result, the natural consequence was that the plan was, I want to say jilted, but that's not the word that I'm, we'll say jilted. The plan was stopped. And Mordecai's name was written in the chronicles of the book in the presence of the king. Now, you'd think that coming off of that, that Mordecai would get more than just having his name written in a book. Wouldn't you? Chapter 3 picks up, after all these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai to a position of prominence because he overthrew... No. Chapter 3 begins with no mention of Mordecai, just saying that Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, had advanced to a position of such prominence that all of the officials in the region were instructed to bow down and pay homage to him, as if he were a second king, similar to the way that we think of Joseph in the Egyptian um, pictures in the end end of the book of Genesis. Well, all right then. So let's find out about this guy, Haman. Might even call him Haman the Horrible. I like that. It's an alliteration, so it makes my heart happy. And I think it's a good descriptor of who Haman actually was. Notice the text, verse 1, says, Haman the Agagite. That means a whole lot to all of you, doesn't it? What is an Agagite? I don't know. That was the first question I wrote down as I was preparing this message this evening. I wrote it at the top of my page, what is an Agagite? I didn't know what it was. What's that? 
Yes, it's telling us his background, his lineage, he's descended from somebody. And what is the importance or the significance of him being an Agagite? Well, let's find out because I went and found out. And so I want to share with you what I learned. If you wanted to jump back to Exodus chapter 17. We find out that these people are actually pretty significant. Exodus chapter 17. What could possibly be happening in Exodus chapter 17? Begin in verse 8. And we learn that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. The Agagites are the descendants from this guy named Amalek. Where are we in Exodus chapter 17? This is a picture of the people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're at Rephidim. They're experiencing blessings of God. And then Israel is attacked by Amalek. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with my staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Why did three people have to go up to the top of the hill if Moses needed to hold his staff up? That's right. What happened? When Moses dropped his hand, the army started losing. That's right. This is a, a very prominent scene from the Old Testament with Moses at the top of the hill holding his hands up towards God. Have you ever held your hands up for a long time? Is it very easy? Sure it is. How long does it take before it's not very easy? Not as long as you'd think, right? And so these other two men would hold Moses' hands up, and when Moses' hands were towards God, the Israelites would do well against the forces of Amalek, and when his hands fell, they would not do so well. And God said that they, He would remember the way that Amalek treated Israel. Do you remember that? I think this is down in verse 15 maybe. No, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. Isn't that funny? God likes to write things in books. He likes memorials. In fact, this is why church business minutes are so important. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I will blot out the memory of Amalek. Is this the last that we hear of the Agagites? Jump ahead to 1 Samuel. We're doing a lot of jumping around. But this is the evening crowd. You guys are committed. I'm trying to scare you off, and I just can't do it. So we're going to try harder. 1 Samuel chapter 15. What's happening in 1 Samuel? This is King Saul. We all like King Saul, right? Anyone have a header at the beginning of 1 Samuel 15? Okay, Saul's not so popular in this chapter. He's rejected. Let's find out why. Beginning in verse 2, Thus say is the Lord, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, Ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And that's exactly what Saul led all the Israelites to do, right? Why was Saul rejected? 
we look at 1 Samuel 15, Saul did not do what God had commanded him. They kept the king of the Amalekites alive. God told him, destroy them completely. Saul didn't destroy them completely. God said, destroy all their property. But instead, Saul decided, according to his own, what he thought was best, well, we'll keep the king alive and we'll keep some of the best ox and stuff. We'll keep that as plunder for ourselves. And we'll destroy the trash, sure, but we're going to keep the good stuff. We don't want to be wasteful. Is that what God told them to do? Well, fast forward, Israel's established as a nation. Here's this guy, second in command of the Persian Empire, and he's an Agagite. He's not even supposed to exist. According to what God told Saul, this Agagite isn't even supposed to be alive. How have I gotten too nerdy for you guys yet? Jumped off on too many tangents? We looked at two scriptural proofs to develop this idea. Have I lost you? Do you think that it's unimportant? Check this out. Go back to Esther chapter 2. Just look across your page. Verse 5, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of, what's that name? What is it? Kish. Yes, Kish. Who's Kish? What? That's right. Oh yeah, so now we can see the significance of all of this coming together. Kish is the father of Saul. Mordecai, the exile in the Persian Empire, located in Susa, near the citadel, is from the same lineage, remember it says he's a Benjaminite, just like Saul, of Saul. And the text emphasizes this. We ran past it this morning because, you know, you're the evening crowd, you can handle this. That morning crowd, I'm just not sure they could handle all this. He's a, his uncle was Saul. The same guy that was told to annihilate all of the Agagites. The reason that they still exist. So after all of this, we find this Agagite, Haman. He rises to power and everyone's war, really kind of worshiping him. Notice that it says not just that they would bow down to him or that they would respect him. We might think of that in our modern equivalent as a salute. I don't think there's anything wrong with saluting somebody, but to pay homage. To pay homage, that phrase is repeated. I think that's a little bit distinct. That sounds more like worship, doesn't it? Pay homage to him. Mordecai did not do so. Now, Mordecai is not so prominent that everyone noticed that, hey, this Mordecai guy's not paying. Haman didn't even know at first. Pay attention to the way that the story unfolds. It was the king's servants who were at the king's gate that asked Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? It was not Haman that noticed, who's this guy that's standing up when I walk by? It wasn't Haman. In fact, they pressed Mordecai, asking him over and over again, well, why is it that you don't bow down and pay homage to him the way that the king commands? And Mordecai doesn't give us a reason here. 
I'll be careful not to read into the text, but in verse 4 we do say he had told them that he was a Jew. What I kind of pieced together with that is he said kind of the same thing that Daniel had said whenever he was supposed to worship Nebuchadnezzar. I'm a Jew. This has already been established since we've been here, since we've been in exile. We don't do that. We worship the one true God. In fact, your kings in the past have even said that it's okay only a few generations ago. Right? If you're familiar with the book of Daniel. And so you see that. He says that I'm a Jew. And they say, well, I'm not sure about that. And so here's the king's officials. Then they go to Haman and they say, hey, boss, we're all bowing down, paying homage to you. You see this guy? Why is he not? And here we find verse 5. Haman was filled with fury. Filled with fury. So much fury, in fact, that his disdain to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He decided he was such an important fellow. The insult of Mordecai, well, it wasn't big enough just that he could have him thrown in jail. Wasn't big enough. Remember, I keep wanting to make comparisons to Daniel. But remember, they just threw Daniel in the lion's den whenever he prayed, right? It was just Daniel, not all the Jews. Not good enough for Haman. He's too big. His name's Haman the Horrible after all. If you have V and something after your name, you're a serious deal. He wanted to destroy all the Jews, all the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That's a pretty big deal. That's easy to look at a book that's written at a time that we're discovering insights about the 5th century and to say that this is something egregious, but I don't have to belabor this point for us all to understand that actually this is pretty recent in our history, isn't it? That any person could say that we would be better off to destroy an entire people group. We've seen it throughout world history over and over again. If we could just get rid of the problem. The real problem is that the problem is not a people group. It's the heart of the people. It's the heart of the people that think that they could solve everything if they could just remove those that objected to them. Pretty sad. I think it's pretty sad. Haman concocts a plan. Now, even with all of his power and all of his influence, he can't just go up to the king and say, I would like to destroy all of the Jews because Mordecai offended me. What I've noticed in my interactions with humanity is that most of the people that are the most vile do not let their venom be on display for everyone to see. The most vile people that I've had the Disfortune of interacting with, and I think you guys can all attest to this, conceal it behind what masquerades as logic. That's exactly what Haman does. He waits until he has an opportunity, and here's his logic or his logos for King Ahasuerus. He says, Their laws are different than ours, they aren't obeying your laws. I want to go back to Daniel again. Is that not the exact same thing that 
the other scribes said to the king about Daniel, these people are different than you. We need to make this law that no one should pray to anyone but you. That's how they trap Daniel, isn't it? The most vile people normally don't let their venom be on display. They masquerade as those that are thinkers. Here's what Haman does. He waits until the time is right. Verse 7 says that he waits until they, they cast lots. Now the irony in all of this is they're casting lots to try and decide. This is a pagan ritual. Turns out God's in control of that too. We'll see that in a little bit as we come to verse 12, I think. But they cast lots to find out when the time is right that Haman can go to the king and he tells them that these people have different laws and that they do not obey them. Now, is that the case with these Jews that are living in exile? Are they living in contradiction to the laws of the Persian Empire? No, we saw this morning. I, I told you this morning that I don't think Esther nor Mordecai are heroes in this story. In fact, I think it was morally wrong for Esther to go along with being married to King Ahasuerus. I don't think she should have done that. But she did. And God's going to use that mistake. They were going with the flow. For all intents and purposes, they were living as Persians with a Hebrew background. Mordecai stands up a little bit, and I've got to give him some credit here. He decides not to bow down. Maybe he's doing that for noble reasons. Maybe he's doing that as a principal issue that he doesn't want to bow down to Haman. Who knows? There's all sorts of conjecture we could make here. Still, I would say the only hero in this narrative is God. As we turn the corner looking at this passage between verses 7 and 11, we find a little bit more insight into how King Ahasuerus decides to run his kingdom. I said in chapter 1 that he's kind of a vacillator, and certainly we see that again. Haman comes and presents an idea to him, and he says, okay, sounds good to me. In fact, he takes the symbol of his authority, his signet ring, he takes his signet ring off and he gives to Haman, and he says, do what seems right to you. I think if I'm reading between the lines and getting a picture of who King Ahasuerus was, I think he was more interested in the partying than he was in the leading. By the time we get to the end of this, I want to jump ahead to verse 12 because I don't want to run long. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in an edict according to all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's satraps. Haman gets his way King Ahasuerus relegates his authority, gives his signet ring to Haman. And, well, one thing we should pay attention to, Haman also, he comes with his logic and he says, hey, I realize that killing all of the Jews is going to come at a pretty big expense. I'll foot the bill. You know, I'll write, I'll sign my name to the check that I've just written with my mouth. No problem. King Ahasuerus says, keep your money. Here's the people. Go and do it. We come to verse 12 and they're putting this plan into motion. They say 12 months later, this is what's going to happen. It's going to take about a year for them to get all of the gallows built and all of the people gathered that they would need for this mass genocide that's going to take place in one day. But here's what I want you to pay attention to. Verse 12 says that it was on the 13th day of the first month. Now those of you, well, 
it's okay if, if, if we're not familiar with this. Does the 13th day of the first month carry any significance that you know of? If you wanted to peek back, I'll just give it to you as a proof and you can look at it and make sure I'm right. If you wanted to peek back at Leviticus 23, verse 5, the 13th day of the first month is the day before Passover begins. It's the day before Passover begins. Now, what's the significance of Passover? We all remember, right? This is a reminder of how God delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt. How He brought them out. How they delivered them. How He preserved them. The day before they're supposed to celebrate that, a command comes from the Persian king with his seal on it. His name signed to it. All the Jews are going to be wiped out a year from today. Can you imagine worshiping at Passover after having that command issued? Here we hang in the balance, the reminder of God delivering us and what seems to be the imminent demise of our people. I can't imagine being in that position. This is issued. They're told to kill young and old. Verse 13, women and children, all in one day. What would God do? He preserved His people. He called them out for a purpose. They were given the Holy Land. And they were in Persia because they were being disciplined. The prophet Nathan prophesied that this is exactly what would happen as a consequence of they're not faithfully worshiping the one true God in Israel. The reason Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, the reason the nation was divided, was because they did not worship the one true God. Faced with that reality, can I be honest just for a sec? Back away from the text. This is just me speaking. It's not scripture. It's not inspired. I would wonder if I wasn't in the same position as those that God eradicated from earth during the flood. There's greater insult in being a chosen people and turning away from God than there is in simply being a reprobate, non-believing, never knowing God's laws. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives us great emphasis on what it means to know God. This is Paul's argument between Romans 8 and 9 as he considers the, what we would call, if we wanted to be real nerdy about it, it was called epistemology, which is how do we know anything? You know? So how do we know God? Well, the way that we know God is because He pursues us, because He comes to know us. The blessing that the Jewish people have is that they were a chosen people who were given the ability to know God. That God gave them His laws that they could live according to them. Their rejection of that is an even greater insult than somebody simply living reprobate, not knowing God, seeking after Him. And so too the church has the Word of God before us, and, and yet for whatever reason it is among us, whether it's pride because we think that we know everything, whether it's fear because we don't want to admit that we don't know anything, 
How do we truly regard the Word of God? In our lives, we've been given the ability to know Him. We have a relationship with Him, and it sits right here before us. Or does it sit on our bedside stand? Does it stay in our car throughout the week until the next Sunday service? Does it, what do we do with this? To know God and to turn away from Him is certainly of greater significance than to not know Him and to simply be lost. If I was in this position, preparing to celebrate a festival, a time of worship, a somber season that reminded me of God delivering people out of this, and I heard the decree that my people were going to be eradicated from the entire kingdom. My first thought, and this is a personal confession, well, I didn't heed the warning, here we go. That's a lack of faith on my part. But I imagine that there were a lot of Jews in Persia that were saying that same thing. I've experienced the discipline of God and being exiled from Jerusalem. Here I am in the middle of Susa, far away from the promised land. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I think that's exactly what I would be thinking. If I had more faith, though... I think I would look at this the way that it actually turns out. The same decree that Haman uses to put the Jewish people up on the cutting block, as it were. The same gallows that are built are the same means that God is going to use to turn this situation around. It won't be the Jews that are hung. It'll be Haman. Because the same God that delivered the people from Israel, even though they didn't deserve it, is the same God that's going to deliver the people in Persia, even though they don't deserve it. And it's the same God that's been with his people until now that will continue to deliver you, even though you don't deserve it. It's a pretty remarkable thought that God does anything for us when we reckon with what we actually deserve. The hard part and the reason why I spent some time reflecting, especially on verse 12 through 15 or 14 really, Because oftentimes whenever we're faced with hardship and we consider the sovereignty of God, it seems like the rational thing that we should do is try to understand what it is that God is doing. As a biblical principle, what we find is God's providence is not easily seen in the moments of our lives. And then immediacy would be the word that I would, not while we're there, you know. To use an illustration, 
you're driving a car. You're more likely to see God's hand at work when you look in the rearview mirror than you are when you're looking through the windshield. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it's not at work. Again, we see this divine interaction, the fact that Mordecai was a descendant from the same lineage of Saul. That the man who sought to kill them was a descendant of Amalek. All these interactions show us in retrospect the way that God was in control. The way that he called his people to be obedient to him. Well, I have more notes, but actually I think that that was a really strong point and I'd like to end on that, but we'll keep moving on anyways. Real fast, a few more nerdy notes. I wrote down the question, and this is the question that we've been trying to come back to. How can I be a good Christian and live in a world that doesn't belong to Christ? Um, and, and so we keep coming back to this question. And I ask what kind of a man, kind of going back now, was Mordecai? He rejected what was the king's command. He didn't bow down. There's no way around that, right? He did not bow down. Well, I wanted to make a note that the way that the Bible views authority, and actually this is enshrined in our church's doctrinal statement under a section called civil authority. I didn't write it down, so I can't quote it for you, but it's there if you'd like to look at it. We believe as a church that the Bible teaches that all authority that exists on earth is there because God has allowed it to be there. In commenting on God's sovereignty, that means that I'm not just talking about nations or authorities that I like. I'm also talking about authorities that I don't like. Is everyone pretty happy with Russia right now? Let me just get popular opinion real fast so I don't get in trouble. Is anyone a fan of Russia at the moment? Okay. Putin is in power because God has allowed him to be in power. Anyone a fan of North Korea at the moment? Okay, good. The powers that be in North Korea are in power because God allows them to be in power. By saying that, it does not mean that the powers that be are godly. It does not mean that they serve God. It does not mean that they are there because God thinks it is best for his people. In fact, in many of these instances, if we went down the list, we would find that there are many leaders in the world who are not only not godly, but are anti-Christian, who are antagonistic towards the word of God because they realize that the, what the Bible teaches contradicts the way that they are calling the people to live. Wherever you are at in the world, wherever you are called to go, perhaps some of you will be sent away to these faraway regions and have to deal with some of this. You are still under the sovereignty of God. Where the Bible tells us that we are to be subject to the authorities that are over us. That's Romans 13. There's no way to get around that. That means even if you disagree with your leaders, you do not have a right to be like me in the fifth grade. Do you remember that illustration from this morning? I was wrong. According to Romans chapter 13, 
Christians should be subject to the authorities that are over them, even when they're not godly authorities. However, when we are commanded or instructed to forsake what is clear in Scripture, and hear me, hear me, we've got to stress this. We've got to get back to stressing this. What is clear in Scripture, not our preferences, not what we think should be in Scripture, but what is explicit. On those issues, we have an obligation to disobey those authorities. Now, we're not saying that it's an issue of conscience. We're not saying, well, I just can't do that because I just don't think that it's right. That's not what this is. It's not a loophole for anyone to say that they disagree with the government and get out of it. But where the Scripture is explicit, where the Scripture emphasizes something, where it's clear on those things, we have an obligation to stand against any authority that contradicts the Word of God. I believe Mordecai did just that. We see that because as King Ahasuerus concludes, if you look at verse 15, this is kind of a peculiar statement at the very end. As they sit down, all of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman might have had a logical argument that he used to deceive or conceal his actual intentions, his fury, as verse 5 or verse 4 says, is verse 5, his fury that built up within him. But his command caused confusion. I imagine this wasn't just the Jews that were confused. I imagine it was the other citizens, other citizens of the Persian Empire that were confused. I imagine they were confused, probably thinking, and we've heard this in the news, haven't we? If they can do it to them, they could do it to us. Have you heard that? I've heard that phrase. They were probably saying the same thing. Vile people might be given positions of power, but under the sovereignty of God, we're reminded through the book of Esther that the same means meant for our destruction are our same means of deliverance. And reflecting on this and thinking about the way that I have, would have responded if I was in this position getting ready to celebrate Passover, what I'm reminded of is that I can have a little bit more faith than I thought that I had because I've got a faithful God behind me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray that it would convict hearts. I pray that it would pierce our minds, and that it would cause change in our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.